0: Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. This is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm joined in the studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher, managing editor of LARB.
1: Hi, Eric. Hello. Hello.
0: Today, we have a very lively conversation with Nathan Englander, author of Dinner at the Center of the Earth, a spy novel set amid the morass of the post-2000 Israeli-Palestine conflict across Berlin, Paris, Tel Aviv, and other locations. Now, Dee, you actually have a personal connection with Nathan, right?
1: I do, yeah. So, full disclosure is that I was Nathan's personal assistant about... 10 years ago? This was a very cool. long time ago, right after, no, I think maybe it was my last year of college. It's a so, great
0: post-college gig or late college it gig. It was
1: totally fun. And I was his assistant for two years. So uh, yeah, I know Nathan well. And it was such a delight to see him again after all this time.
0: And despite the fact that he's one of Medea's friends and associates, this interview is absolutely wonderful.
1: <laughs> yes. It didn't ruin our conversation with Nathan.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's get to that conversation. Let's do it. We're thrilled to be speaking today with Nathan Englander. Nathan is a translator, playwright, and author of several books, including the short story collection For the Relief of Unbearable Urges, great title, and the novel The Ministry of Special Cases. His play, The 27th Man, premiered at the Public Theater in 2012. His translation of The New American Haggadah, edited by Jonathan Safran Foer, was published also in 2012 by Little Brown. And he co-translated Edgar Caret's Suddenly a Knock at the Door, published by FSG. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Washington Post, among other publications. He is the recipient of several prestigious awards, including, but not limited to, the Guggenheim Fellowship, the Penn malamud Award, the Bard Fiction Prize, and the Sue Kaufman Prize for the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His 2013 short story collection, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank, won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He is currently a distinguished writer in residence at New York University, and his most recent book, which we are going to talk about today, is the novel *Dinner at the Center of the Earth*, which was published in September by Knopf. I Welcome to the show, Nathan.
1: That was the longest introduction. Yeah, has that, ever was, received. Like, that was a like also very
0: intimidating introduction.
1: I'm intimidated. Only Nathan will talk. Yeah. <laughs> <That's funny.
2: laughs> So let's, that's the, that's literally the longest I've ever been quiet. So that's <laughs> already a record for me.
0: But it was you weren't really quiet because it was still all about you. Yeah, that's true. Um, so can you just describe I was trying to think of how to summarize this novel as kind of a simple lead-in, and um, all I could come up with? A spy thriller
2: about the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict yeah. Yeah. with a romance. Yeah, that's funny. I'm like a telenovela with Jews. No, I, <laughs> oh, why is there not one of those? This is how ideas get started. This is. I think it's team. transparent, but it has that's to be funnier. Funny. Exactly, <laughs> funnier and more yamacas. Yeah. Oh no, I I was just literally I feel you know I love my editor and torture her for twenty years, but I literally felt for her with like trying to summarize this book, and the reviewers have been, hey, I'm thankful for. Their support, but also like their spoiler alerts. I was like, this book is impossible to review without giving yeah. spoilers. And then also to summarize, it makes it sound even more insane. Back to the telenovela <laughs> part, where I'd be like, "It's a general; he's in a coma." But yeah, I will descri- he wake up? Will yeah, he not? Exactly. But I describe it. Yes, yeah, sort of. I see it as a political thriller that like rolls into a magic realist history of Israel, and then ends mm. up being a love story, which turns into an allegory. So it's got about yeah seven different threads running. Not concurrently, but it's structurally bananas. And to get instantly serious, because we're talking Israel-Palestine, it is thus because I really wanted the book to mirror the way I see the conflict, which is just, you know, cycles of violence spinning back on themselves. And I wanted to keep that shape.
0: Let's talk about these cycles of violence, because that is one of the things that does come up. There's a way in which... A number of your characters are kind of locked in a particular devotion or relationship to a side in the conflict that ends up kind of perpetuating this endless bloodletting. Not all of the characters. It's really hard to do this without any spoilers, but can you talk about how you see that conflict and how you wanted to use the novel uniquely to explore it?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. This is our first, I've spoken to you before, J.A., but this is our first, I already knew on the way down the hallway, I was like, oh, that's already a smart hello. I knew there would be good <laughs> questions. Literally, walking <laughs> down the hallway. Nice. I was like, this is a complex Flattery hello. will get you everywhere. Yeah, but I guess I lived in Israel for a whole hunk of years and I moved there for the peace process and I was truly heartbroken when it came apart and I really wanted to write this book for you mm. know near 20 years, but I was desperate not To write, you know, I can print those out for you later. We can read them as like a telethon. (laughs) But uh, speaking of, every word is going to start with tele today. That's going to be the theme. But, oh yeah, just not to have 900 pages of like didactic, my explanation of peace or the mansplaining or all that stuff. Just an extraordinary dump of heartbreak about peace and facts. And I was so desperate for it to be plot driven, character driven, you know, this both major drafts, the raw draft, and then when I was rewriting it, it would, was always up at 500 pages, and it's a 250-page book. I like just was desperate for us to be able to enter into the story and like follow it through mm. plot. So back to what you're saying is, yeah, there's a lot of loaded characters that push to the edge on both sides. I was really there's a Hebrew concept, tafukah la fuch, which is like the opposite of the opposite. I wanted everyone to push against the kind of boundaries that you're talking about to seem one way, be the there to be one person, to be another, to to hold both. The whole book for me is about dual realities, and let's talk about Schrödinger's cat for nine hours. Let's talk about quantum mechanics. But anyway, yes, I wanted those realities to run together.
1: Speaking about reality, so you were there when the peace process fell apart, as you just said. And there's a moment in the book when we sort of watch it fall apart. It's very brief and it's momentous. Do you recall what you were doing? Was it was it a moment? It was a no. It really. It's so funny. Well,
2: so now we're. Yeah, this is story is story. Like again, back to the split in Israel, which the way like I and Palestine, which I sum up most easily as I was living in Jerusalem and my holy site was the Temple Mount, and that a Palestinian neighbor, you know, she'd be living in Ilkudz and her holy site being Haram al Sharif, like literally jewelry. Like, not same city, like same physical place, separate city. So, when you ask about memory, yeah, it's my memory. So, as every year goes by, like these things, they take your brain makes a narrative. So, at the time, I'm sure it wasn't a moment, but now, you know, in 2017, it really does seem like a moment. And that was New Year's of 2000. Those are the bad September's. September 2001 was not good in New York, and September 2000 in Jerusalem was not a great one but yeah we had Rosh Hashanah dinner and I feel like we woke up the next morning you know after sort of Jewish New Year's dinner and then the country it just felt to me like it was on fire like you know Sharon had gone up to the Temple Mount which is in the book like you know with a phalanx I'm gonna say every big word on the right (laughs) phalanx of security forces and again but I remember talking to a Palestinian friend after he's like where you can both pin it on that moment, but also like things are boiling, they're looking for a moment. It's not, it was right. just ready to explode. And yeah, that morning to wake up the next day, really the way I hold it in memory is just like the country was on fire. And I felt like now we're gonna burn it all down. And. As we see in America, you don't want your fiction to be like, and a local example, which,
1: (laughs) well, I'm just saying it takes a
2: lot of people to make peace and it takes a lot, you know, the human capital the good things you see when everyone comes together and the extraordinary things that humankind can do when they come together. And then you're like, yeah, it takes about, you know, 17 really committed people to undo 200 years of American democracy. Like, that's it. You know, you need to be out like a dozen ill-meaning people to deconstruct the whole fucking thing. And I feel like that was it with the peace process. I mean, there's a moment in this book, a game that I play with my buddy, but like when you write, it all goes into the work. But a game that we play is like, for years we've been playing it like regular people who change history. And it's like that idea to me, like I can't even believe it, that like Yigal Amir, I hate when people are like, say that they're, you know, oh, well, they're not really like a deeply religious person who's doing bad things. And I say, well, they're not religious because they're doing bad things. I'm like, no, they're religious and bad. You know what I'm saying? So like, Yigal Amir is a radical who killed Rabin. He's not a radical. He was like a law student at a mainstream university. He's a regular guy who took a gun and killed the prime minister. And like, just, I just think like, wow, a singular person, that's not let's not do guns for, or yes, let's do guns the whole rest of the time, but that he could vote, that's his vote, is like a singular person who can change the course of history. Those kind of people obsess me.
0: Can we talk about not that type of person, but the response or the reaction to that type of person? Because one of the other threads in the book, at least as I was reading it, was this kind of how one inhabits a contradiction in a world that seems politically... And socially structured not to allow the very contradictions that are the stuff of everyday life. So, for example, you'll have characters that there are these, and this is true in fiction as it is in life, of these moments of contact, romantic contact, friendly contact between kind of Israelis and Palestinians. And yet the inability to allow that kind of what we might call like a micro piece to extend into any other larger context, right? So that then it becomes as soon as the hermeneutic of like you are this and I am this enters or somehow becomes announced, then those people that were once together like retreat to their separate corners and everybody else sees each other through an ideological lens. I mean, how do you think either the level of characters or the type of world situation that you're trying to represent how do people inhabit those contradictions?
2: You know, it's funny, like, or you're like, you say your thing. And if we laugh, we'll know it's funny. So I shouldn't declare it to be funny. I should say it and you can judge. Soliciting laughter. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I just think about it's such a big point you're making, but it's also like a primal point of the book. Like there are many subjects in this book. Even just choosing a cover where it's like so many of the covers I saw had like a cell on it. I'm like, that's like 20 pages of my book. And I finally written a book with a plot and more than <laughs> yeah. one setting. Like, don't tell people who already read me that like now we're going to take as usual story a long about time a time to talk yeah. about a small scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, it's everywhere. But, you know, so, so much about it's like definition, like this is a book about Israel. Like if you talk about Israel books, you know, just did event with Foer. We'll use all his names on the radio, mm-hmm. Jonathan Saffron Foer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in that idea where people are like, oh, you both wrote Israel books this year. And I'm like, you know, his was last year. But I would say like, oh, his book is about family to me or divorce, you know, like about, you know, generational, like how you relate to your kids and like all that stuff. I was like, that's, yes, there's Israel. So what you're talking about is these moments. I'm really interested in those ideas of objectification. So it goes to Israel, Palestine, but such a big part of this book to me is just the vulnerable me part of it, where I'm like, what if a spy was like me, you know? So I I took it back. It's like one of the final pieces that I put in there, and I knew this book was done, when I had this, you know, went back to a file from years ago and pulled out this moment. But it was just that notion of like once somebody else is, sees you this way, if you absorb that seeing, I need a whiteboard in here. Can I go to each person's house who's listening and draw a picture? <laughs> sort of this notion that like, when my first book came out, easiest example, everyone's like, you know, I'm a fifth generation American. Everyone's like, oh, a Jewish American writer. I was like, I just thought right, I was right. American. Yeah. And this note, I felt so much pressure. It took a long time for me to get a hold of it like, oh, everyone is welcome to look at me and see a Jew because that's pretty much what they see. But I don't <laughs> have to, I'm allowed to have an identity. You know what I'm saying? I'm allowed to look in the mirror and just see me, you know, mm-hmm. so it was that idea. I was thinking of like, when you're talking about like, you know, to use obviously telling the story around the big story, which is Israel-Palestine, but I thought so simply about you know how that affects us—all those moments of interaction. So yes, if you're saying the spy part, Israeli and a Palestinian, and there's you know spycraft going on, that's the gigantical version of it. But the simple part of identity, where I have prisoner Z in the novel, remember being a child with his yarmulke on. Like, what's that moment of you're coming towards someone, and they're going to see a Jew, and he puts it in his pocket? Oh you know what I'm yeah, saying? yeah like, that's, I love that scene. Like that's yeah. just from life. That was me being like, oh, I already was sh-, you know, like shape shifting just not to get a whooping or have to have a fight. I would kill that. No, but I'm just saying like not to have a face off when you're eight years old walking home from the candy store or whatever it is like that idea. Where I'm like, Oh, I went from Jew to Gentile, right? Like that with like a little
1: with slip of the right? With performance right? Yeah. Performance. And
2: I felt like, Oh, how many times do we shift identities? And I thought about that as like writing life, all those different selves. You know, I'm like writer guy talking to you now. I can't be any more sincere. I am trying my best to be present here and open, but it's a mm. version of me, you know, and I think about all those versions and, what you're asking makes me think of it like where they bump up against each other, or where you know, like point of ignition.
0: Well, yeah, or the fact that we don't let those things bump, or we don't acknowledge that they bump up against one another. Because in a sense, like that transformation that happens with the character in the book that is based on a memory that you had, where by a simple performance and knowing what that viewer is going to see, is both of those things actually in that moment. He is both the Jew and the Gentile, right? Um, yeah, which but, is
2: what a spy is be you know, and it's like yeah. the level that you can pull that off. Subterfuge. Like, you, yeah, and, yeah, which makes me think of the writing process in a sense, like it's, you know, yeah, like writing is the unthreatening Unsexy version of spy. You know what I'm saying? You have to inhabit these people. Like a spy has to go out. I have to be here. And you're actually my friend Sam is quite convinced I'm a spy. now. he's like, "You're going around talking about what a bad spy you would be." He like thinks (laughs) I'm under double deep cover. He's like, "Now you can travel. You're going to cities every day." He thinks like this is the you're really
0: the best spy. He thinks this is like like the ideal
2: flim flam. But yeah, I got to think of this idea of like Jewish identity, secular identity, having to be like, "Oh, I'm writer person now," or "I'm a teacher," or "I'm a dad," like any of those things, and then that notion of just what it is to write, which is you really do, to build a reality, you have to, like, to build a character, you have to inhabit it. And I thought, you know, that was, to me, just an interesting small part of the spy thing. I'm like, oh, it's like writing, but you have to go out of the house and execute this.
1: It's funny because a lot of the characters in this book are, at the same time, even if they are shapeshifters in a way, are perpetually trapped. That they are either in a cell, like that cover artists wanted to depict or they can't cross the border they have to figure out other ways of either getting to see that the people they love or escaping out of the identities that they inhabit and in many cases they they just simply cannot do it so there is some shape shifting but there's also no there's a sense of like no escape i thought
2: yeah that's I was like, you're like, no, exit. Yeah, it's no an, a, it, well, it's an yeah. existential question you're asking, and that's the stuff that obsesses me. Back to building this book where, you know, off air, you mentioned, you know, my agent Nicole, but, you know, she'll be like, oh, that was really funny. You know, that's entertaining. But like, I didn't put that into entertaining. She'll be like, what's wrong with entertaining the reader? What's wrong with you? You know, I'm always yeah. like, it has to be for the book's needs, you know, in this weird, bizarre manner. Uh-huh. You know, like, what's wrong with just having a funny part of the book? But I really feel like if you're building reality, I hope all those parts are in there. I feel like if something's said, it has to be, hit. we're talking about balancing a million realities, but you're going to like the core darkest part of the book which no I'm saying but that's like the central we're talking about Israel-Palestine and that's to me you're bringing up like the gigantical part where I have this prisoner Z who has disappeared into the prison system he's just erased but then I thought the guard of the person who's erased the secret guard for the person who doesn't exist the guard also doesn't exist because he's guarding somebody who doesn't and I was like you know it gets into this all stockholm syndrome like Patty Hearst this notion where they're like enemy you know it's jailer and jailed and but they're also basically in love you know it's this weird mix. But back to the metaphors for Israel-Palestine, it's obviously worse. I want this whole book to be Rorschachy. You can pick whatever side you want. But in that example, it's obviously worse to be the prisoner than the guards, you know, the trapped guard. But in a sense, they feed on each other and they're both trapped. And that is... You know, everything in its opposite right. in this book, there's also the general who's in a coma. In a coma. Yeah, and right. the woman who cares for Ruthie. But I feel like, oh, here's this woman trapped caring for a dead man who's barely alive. And then I have a guard who's caring for a live man who might as well be dead. And that's all the doublings and redoublings that entertain me and maybe six grad students.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Recorded at KPFK Studios in North Hollywood. We've been speaking with Nathan Englander, author of Dinner at the Center of the Earth. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're in the studio today with Medea Ocho, the managing editor of LARV, who has a book recommendation for us this week.
1: I do. This is actually a book I've been recommending for a while, and I've received recommendations before I actually read it, and so mm. I'm, I'm glad I, I listened to them. The book is Rachel Cusk's Outline, okay, which I read a couple of weeks ago. And Outline is part of what I think is going to be a trilogy. Another has already come out called Transit, and a third will be coming out soon. And Outline is, it's shockingly good. It was almost, I think, one of the best books I've read. Really? by a contemporary author in a very, very, very long time. What's it about? So the story is a writer, a woman writer, is flying to Greece to teach a fiction writing class. Essentially, the book moves through different conversations that she has with people that she meets along the way. One of them is the neighbor on her plane, which is a personal nightmare, but she engages him in a way that I would not have. And then they see each other again in Athens, and then some writer friends that she meets in Greece, and some of the students that she has in, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. But the real extraordinary part of the book is Rachel Cusk's writing, which is, it's truly astonishing in its skill. The one comparison that I sort of could come up with was she's sort of like a contemporary Henry James.
0: Early or late? Distended. Early. It, was, okay, so not the, not the obscenely distended sentences. She
1: hasn't reached the golden bowl stage yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I look forward to it. I hope she does. She has exquisitely rendered sentences, and it's these social interactions that Mm. then take up 10 pages or so, and they're minutely conveyed in a way that is so intelligent, observant, careful. It's just a very beautiful book. And I have Transit on the back burner. I'm going to read that one next. Okay. And Rachel Cusk, she's a writer. She's based in... London. She also had another book, uh, previous to, or maybe a few, actually. This is the only one I've read.
0: All right. Can you give us the title? We know that it's Rachel Cusk. Can you give us the title?
1: Yes, it's called Outline by Rachel Cusk.
0: Thank you so much, Dea. Thanks. You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Nathan Englander, author of Dinner at the Center of the Earth.
1: And it seems, well, I, I don't want to give away the end, though I guess the title sort of gives away the end. There's but a dinner. There's a dinner. There's <laughs> yeah. a dinner at the at center, the of, center the of the world. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> yes. Um, its molten core. And its molten core. And it seems like in order to sort of go beyond all these various ways in which these people are trapped, one escapes through death sometimes, through, well... Ruthie maybe is the exception in some ways, but that you just sort of have to like break down like time and space, right? And Map Maker becomes, again, spoiler. Okay, I won't give away who Matt Maker is and what what she yeah, yeah, does, yeah. Um, but the way to escape it, like all sort of time and space has to collapse in and of itself and you just yeah. have to find yourself somewhere mm-hmm. in the
2: middle. Yeah, you're so nice of going to write to my weird obsession, or not weird, they're my heartfelt obsessions. Yeah, I always talk about, ticks versus themes like i finally back to that kindly intro i was like oh life goes by like there are bo- i always say i for the first 10 years of my career people are like what do you do for a living and i was like i write book you know i really had to finish that novel it's really hard. but I, it
1: was a good book yeah thanks but yeah, yeah it's, but that's why i'm
2: working on the second play cuz i really i write books and play you know it's but um i was going to say if just every time you know someone laughs you know they chortle that's a tick. If throughout every book everyone's chortling, and by the way, they shouldn't don't have anyone chortling in your books at all. But nonetheless,
1: did, did people chortle in this
2: book? No, there's not a chortle. Oh, yeah, I'm just giving an example so. of like a linguistic tick that you oh, have to be aware uh-huh. of. But then being comfortable with your themes, where like it gets clearer and clearer to me that I'm obsessed with this gray space, and I think that goes back to yeah. both like religious childhood, so a black and white world to like then inhabit. Like things have these gradations to them, and also just right. this grown up thing, which is what Twitter serves a huge purpose for, which is just to people all day long to be like you're hypocritical this person's you know like that's my whole feed now is like (laughs) what private email servers like the whole thing was the you know like saying so but it's this notion where you just can't wrap your head around those things that i'm obsessed with but as i already said about being like jerusalem versus Ilkud's, i'm really i thought this gets back to you know my belief in the peace process of like grabbing this you know an optimism that I have Mm -hmm. as things become more hopeless i'm like mm-hmm. let's go back to optimistic i have an idea the more impossible it gets like let's make it possible but i think so much about maybe what goes wrong when people try to broker peace or to get people to understand on certain fronts is is that separate reality thing like it's not me and you where you're like you know you believe in school vouchers and i'm like actually i really believe in the public school system and you know that's where you're you know like pay for your right. own private school like public school kids need that anyway but i'm saying that's a disagreement about a policy and we're discussing the same thing but i think you know it got so clear to me that for peace to happen you know they're like we're gonna need to bridge worlds like to crack through realities and yes in terms of this insanely structured book i was like the only place like i wanted to show this place like this is the point we can meet both sides can come together and it needs to be yeah outside space and time now it sounds like science fiction too
0: (laughs) you know if we can return to what you were talking about um, with the character Prisoner Z so like the contradictions that you're talking about in a way one reading of him I think could be that he's a character who articulates our desire and the impossibility of realizing our desire to not be complicit in anything Right. So, on the one hand, there's a sense that, like, for him, you can be driven. I mean, and these are all the kind of narratives of Eliyah, right? Is where you, like, you are driven. It's a very emotional desire to return to Israel, to serve the state, like all of that kind of stuff. But that requires, in some ways, ignoring that any work that you might do for a state is also bound up with the harm that that state may do to others. That is true in many senses. This kind of. We just don't want to be complicit. And that's true in our waking lives, I think, that it's like, you know, we're part of a system that in some cases causes violence and in some cases Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, you pains. know, I, I bet we have three cell phones in here. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Exactly. that are the us. result of someone else's pain. Actually, yeah. the
1: other day, you guys, I was getting, this is tangential but relevant, I think. I was getting that's coffee. That's like the funny
2: thing. I was like, you tell us and
1: we'll <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, tangential <laughs> first. I was getting coffee at Blue Bottle.
2: Which yeah, like has, Blue Bottle.
1: Yeah, well, mm. and then I was, I was exiting Blue Bottle and a man with a baby turned to me and said, you know, Blue Bottle is bought by Nestle. And then with a sort of sneer, followed it up with the company that's pumping groundwater of out of California. And I was simultaneously ashamed because I don't want to support pumping groundwater out of California. But also, I just wanted a coffee and it was nearby. <laughs> <laughs> and where does that mean? I could just stay home.
2: Yeah, or you could right? do literally nothing.
1: Or I could do nothing. You could
0: well, but you could yeah. withdraw
2: from the world. This is like a nine-hour thing that I obsess over. Even right. like, the, yeah, we're always like making choices, and
1: but so well, the, and Prisoner but, Z makes the...
2: But then, yeah, how does Prisoner Z like
0: reconcile? Because that's one of the main things that he
2: struggles with in the
0: book is both like <coughs> belief and
2: then reality. Yeah, I was to... I still wanted to list all our personal crimes. As we <laughs> go Let's here. like how many? Yeah, anyway, but um, again, the part of a book that you read what is a book that's like the subconscious part of me like all the writing that's conscious you mm-hmm. don't see and then there's that out of body part where you have your little window in the day where you hopefully like fall away and tell your story but in terms of the conscious things that we're going you know, to intentional the structure that i was aware of is, as I said, not, I want to go to the phones now where be like, should they drink blue bottle? <laughs> I shouldn't. The next call I shouldn't. But um, I didn't want to pass judgment. Exactly, like that's the good examples. Like I didn't want to pass judgment in this book. I really wanted, you know, as a reader, it comes to me like as reader, where like I love that part of reading a book. It's just a shared consciousness with the author. There's like a story in between. And the books that I love, like Camus, Kafka, like the things that saved me were books that asked questions, the big questions. When I needed answers, I found these books You know, thanks to the good English teacher that asked the questions, but they didn't give the answers. But I thought there was this extreme bravery, like my brain was rewired from like engaging with the questions in a certain way. So I could sort of address what you're saying as answer, but that's like against, it was about empathy is what I'm trying to say, which is... When I was leaving Israel last book tour, I was headed to the airport, and that was the cover of the newspaper. It was a story about prisoner X, this guy who was so much likely. Like maybe he got more, you know, Zionism, and I got more Bible. Hmm. But you know, just like sort of a religious Australian guy who moved to Israel, and I felt like this guy moved to Israel. Mm-hmm. He so that's adopting another nation, mm-hmm. adopting its ideology, adopting to a degree that he joined their vaunted, terrifying, like super famous for being secretive, spy service the Mossad mm-hmm. and like did scary deep cover stuff and then was a traitor. Like so two parts of him one that interested me in the, you know, twisty part of my brain was that Having been disappeared, like prisoner X didn't live until he died and he hung himself from his cell. There was no cell from which to hang himself until the moment of hanging. So I was very interested, like until he was dead, he had never lived. But that's one thing. But more, I thought I'd been looking for a way to tell this story. And I thought I love spy stories, real life ones, you know, and then, you know, the movies, the books. I love all that stuff. Like it's usually someone becomes a traitor because of failure of character or they got passed over for promotion or, you know, there's a sex tape. Yeah, yeah, you know. Whatever. (laughs) Less romantic. Less romantic, you know. More or less. Yeah, exactly. You want to be president. You know, like there's (laughs) many reasons people collude and do things with Mm -hmm. foreign powers that we get for power, money, yeah, your many romantic versions uh, (laughs) of you know, why people flip. And I thought, what about flipping for empathy? you know what I'm saying I mm-hmm. thought what about someone I was like this is how I can tell the story through character I just wanted to follow him you know you can't be more you know as we say in poker as if I'm in the poker world <laughs> but none I have cards but the point is like being pot committed like you can't show both those central characters the general and you know prisoner Z they're people who are super committed and I wanted to show both sides so what about someone who again is under deep cover real spy and flips out of feeling for the other side I just wanted to look at that and why the general with his super violent past in this book, a man who fights wars, you know, awesome. really, I think, relishes in being on the battlefield and and is has only one mission, which is not about coexistence. It's mm-hmm. about Israel and Jewish Israel and its Victory. future. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, and I thought about that, you know, based not based on, I was like, you shouldn't be inspired by Sharon, but as a template. But what it is when you become president or prime minister, what your obligation is to ensure a future. And if we use, let's like flip to the real Sharon, like this is the guy, the father of the settlements, you know, when he was fighting, Mm -hmm. you know, down, you know, crossing the deserts in Egypt, he would have taken Cairo if Russia didn't stop him, you know, if it wasn't going to go nuclear. And I, you know, he was going, you know, the incursion into Lebanon that lasted decades. And he, I'm sure he would have gone like straight up again until he hit, you know, the North pole kind of thing but that this guy like land grabber greater Israel guy father of settlements that he would pull out of Gaza like that to me you know I wanted that and he's too loaded an individual I kept you know Arafat can be Arafat and Ben-Gurion can be Ben-Gurion but why my you know my ex becomes a Z and why I make my character you know the allegorical the general but I want like that to me is also back to flips and points what it is to say you know to see peace you know in the most selfish not reaching out way, it is strategic. You know, it is the next war to fight. And that idea that like a Sharon would pull out of Gaza, to me, made me see understood the responsibilities of his job, like had he not had a stroke. And that's the whole sadness of these stories, like had Rabin not been murdered. And then like the opposite. I mean, I left Israel, you know, when Sharon Mm -hmm. won, I was like, this is the end of peace. I was even surprised to understand. I was like, I think, you know, anyone who cares about a future for their in the most selfish manner for either Israel or Palestine has to see that like peace is the only option.
0: Well, is this then where the novel in some ways is about how the motor force of pursuing an ideality then like meets the, you know, the hard brick wall of like reality, right? And in which empathy is the, I guess is what's produced in the crash there. Terrible metaphor. <laughs> That's but funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. That kind of, the, that there's like, a, there's an arrest empathy for both Empathy is the peanut of
2: butter and the peanut. Yeah. In the no, dog's <laughs> mouth, the, yeah. yeah.
0: But, hmm. Uh, um, <clears throat> Like, is there, it is, sorry, rather, is there a conflict then that arises between the longing after an ideal, no matter how perverted the reality of that ideal may become, and then the way that empathy can make us suddenly confront
2: in a very clear way the reality? I think to get certain things done in the world. Thing uh, things I don't usually support, like empathy has to be turned off. You know what I'm saying? Like we're mm. working, not me, like many people are working hard in this country to remove healthcare from children. Like there's no... It requires no Yeah, there's, no, there's yeah. no side to that argument. So what, yeah, I guess that's it. I feel like there's, you know, it's not a magical point. It's just, yeah, we we're talking about empathy. Yeah, Empathy as ingredient. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like when people talk about winning, like what they're investing, you know, if Israel has a plan or, you know, the Palestinian, if Palestine has a plan, like... I don't even know what winning looks like. Winning looks like a terrible cost of human life. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. like everybody should lose a little bit and have two futures for two people. So I think it's, yeah, I, I that's why I go to them. It's a novel. So that's the point. It it's, it goes to this place. It goes to this allegorical place to make this point. But the right. real world point is I don't think it's allegorical and I don't think it's magical. I just think it's almost, uh, I don't know what I want to call it, like, obligatory pessimistic optimism. Like I just I, I feel like I made my own flip. Like I was so hopeless and every year more hopeless. And I feel like, oh, let's just demand peace or demand an optimistic approach to this. Wait,
0: so you're an optimist right now?
2: A pessimistic op- you know like what do you want me to tell you? Like I don't want the planet to end so it looks we've had some terrible Well not you know, wanting disasters. it to end is different than I know, but believing, believing that it might not. Right. But I'm saying like <laughs> Then let's use, let's believe that, like, you know, let us come together and work as hard as we can starting right now. And let's also add the element that, yes, I bet we can still fix things, you know, as, you know, like as dire as the climate is now. I bet, you know, some mix of actual like changing our ways and science and human capital and all that stuff, you know. So So. then
0: hope for you is the possibility of an empathetic flip.
2: Mm, Yeah, I'll take it.
1: I mean that's that's not it's not a bad basis for hope. Yeah, I think. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's it. Because it yeah. it
1: sounds like hope would be how one reconciles these two worlds, or uh, empathy is how one reconciles these two worlds, right? Because yeah. there's no other. There seems to be no other. Well, empathy or, would real be a way. way of
0: splitting the difference. I think, where you would say neither side can win, and in that sense, we also must work out a compromise in which. Everybody, like you were saying before, loses a little bit such that there's no like total win.
2: Right. Yeah. Or that's a, or that is a total win. That's what I'm saying. Like, in either case, ending this in a without making peace means they're like, you know, I don't know what that is. Is that genocide? Is that like, there's people on both sides. So, and, and you said split the difference. And maybe that's the point. Like, maybe that's how the empathy builds and builds as a just straight idea in my head is like someone who, you know, is in Israel now, like an Israeli or Palestinian kid who's the, you know, age that I was when I moved there. Like, they don't even probably remember a time without a wall. Yeah.
0: yeah. Like yeah. that idea. I'm going to talk yeah. about
2: the with all the political issues and occupation and extraordinarily messed up power structures and all that stuff. Like, and I'm thinking of this nostalgic time where there was that much more crossing over and mixing and seeing other people as human beings you know like that that idea of like knowing who they were as Individuals back to identity, you know, people yeah. with names, yeah, not Arab Jew like this is my neighbor, this is who I yeah, work not with. types, but yeah. human beings. So like, yeah. I feel like, and then there's people who remember, you know, some friend's grandfather remember him talking about like the golden, you know, people talking about golden ages that were also violent. That's why I say like each intifada is worse than the last. Each, mm-hmm. you know, each war gets more violent. The missiles fly further. Like people yeah. hit back harder. And I was just like, we talking about the golden age of intifada one that was so violent, like oh, it was stones and tear gas, like it was terrible, but like. Yeah, this you know splitting the difference, but that wall up, that separation of the two peoples, I feel like back to empathy, like it's just so separate now, and it just terrifies me. The longer it goes on, yeah. the longer like a sort of day to day, just the yeah, this the longer this day to day absence of the other goes on, I think the more you know dangerous it comes.
0: There's actually, there's one moment that I wanted to ask you about in the in the text. So there's a, a, a moment you're describing, I believe, a bomb that goes off at Hebrew University. Yes. Um, and it's a campus that in the in reality and in the text is described as kind of a a meeting place, more cosmopolitan in a sense. It's a meeting place of different cultures, different peoples. Um, And then you have this this kind of beautiful quote that I wondered if you could explain for us a little bit. So, he set this bomb down among all those bright futures and walked away. In this terrible time of suicide bombers, this wasn't a suicide. It was a bomb that needed goodwill
2: to go off.
0: What do you mean by a bomb that needed goodwill to go off?
2: So... You know, this is, again, this is my fictionalized version of, uh, in this case, a, a real yeah, life incident, but yeah. such a huge part of my Jerusalem experience. And, you know, I studied at the university for a year and would go write my books up there. You'd go and get, you're like, you know, as it says in there, state subsidized schnitzel. You know, in the, uh, as I said, you'd cross Nancy Reagan Plaza. Mm-hmm. It was all donor name. There'd be like a picture of Barbara Streisand. It smells Here's like something. rosemary everywhere. That's funny. Yeah. And then, and then there's, and then there's the Frank Sinatra cafeteria. But like, you know, back to everyone's close call, you know, these notions where I, I really think about that idea of the things you just put out of your head there where everyone's like, I was on my way. I was just leaving mm-hmm. when when terrible things happen. But, oh, it was just this time of suicide bombers. All these, you know, attacks were people blowing themselves up. And the Hebrew U-bombing was someone who worked at the university. I think he'd been a painter. He's in jail. He's alive. But he'd walked in there and left a bag. And I thought... Everywhere in Israel, there's nowhere like the whole country is trained. If you leave a bag, you scream like it's suspicious object. You know, it's like screaming fire in a movie theater, except usually back to I would rather die polite. My mother and I, we talk about this all the time like we'd rather choke to death in a restaurant than have the Heimlich done. <laughs> like, ugh, my, you know, my mother be like, hey, have a piece of steak fly. I'd rather die like a dignified person in the bathroom. You know, we I, both of us would crawl to a bathroom to die before we'd have that. But there in Israel, you actually do scream, you know, like, you, you know, you do scream fire in the movie theater. You right. actually see something that looks funny and, and the bomb squad comes and there's a cordon. I mean, it's just a reaction. And Hebrew back to that, where I feel like that place, you know, whatever mini campus you know, version of reality there is, but a university is a place of hope. Nobody works. When you ask me things that symbolize future, you know, universities, libraries, like nobody's at the university to finish something there in the now you're, everyone's dreaming of a future and also trying to have sex. It's a beautiful place. It's about (laughs) sex and study. Like that's all school is. It's a real utopia. Yeah, it is a utopia. (laughs) Like literally, it's a utopia. (laughs) got to get my test done and maybe someone will make out with me. What a lovely time in life. But, you know, I feel like that's the university and I feel like that notion that this is the one place, like while I was there at the worst of times, you'd still, I, I, because I'd think about it all the time and then it happened. I'd be like, it's so weird here how someone leaves their bag in the library and you're just like, I'm like, oh, see you later, you know, and you go off to get lunch and we're just like, oh, it's the university. This place doesn't Mm -hmm. count. This is a special utopian world where we're all going to be together, you know, religious, secular, Arab, all that, like everyone's going to be there. And yes, obviously there are tensions, but pretty utopian to me. And I thought that idea, like it was someone smart enough, you know, not even the bomber, but the person who planned the attack to say like we are going to take advantage of the goodwill of this place cuz really there you can walk in and put your big bag down and say i'm going to go get me some schnitzel you know and a coke you know and, <laughs> and
1: nobody will say anything and
2: nobody'll say anything and to me like that you know was really like the the meanness, you know, about, forget the, or, or don't forget the word evil, but the the real meanness behind that act to me when I'm, you know, taking, swinging to both sides, there is, you know, also based on a mo- but a bombing in Gaza, that's also central to this book. But yeah, those things where I'm like, the idea of plotting and executing just obsess me, you know, what, what has to be put out of your head to deliver in both cases in that book, that kind of punishment mm. on your enemy.
0: Well, we could talk about this book and with Nathan Englander for absolutely ever. But that is the end of our show. We've been speaking with Nathan Englander. (laughs) On the cheeriest point. On (laughs) the cheeriest possible point. Um, We've been speaking with Nathan Englander, author of Dinner at the Center of the Earth, out now from Knopf. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levens. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.